It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 379. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Once a month, the first Monday of the month, we open up the show to your questions. If you have a question you'd like us to consider for a future episode, just go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. We missed last month because I can't read a calendar and Tom was here the month before, but we are, uh, I'm so glad to have you back, Bonnie. It's been a couple of months. I'm laughing. You know how to read a calendar just perfectly fine. It's that there just aren't enough days in those darn months. (laughs) In this case, I really was not reading the calendar, but yeah, things that life has a way of keeping going, whether you are paying attention or not. So we got, as as a result, we have a ton of questions. So we are going to do our very best to respond to these. If you have a question that comes out of this conversation, please feel free to reach out. As I mentioned, coachingforleaders.com com slash feedback is the very best way to do that. And our first question comes in from Samantha. Samantha writes, what to do if you have an employee that is affecting the team? In an effort to coach this person in my team, I listened to several of your past episodes. I really wanted to help this person, develop this person, make it work. But at the end of the day, this person's behavior was never going to change, no matter how much coaching I gave. As a result, the person did exit the business, but it was one of the most challenging experiences in my career to date. As a result, I am currently working on a challenge to be brave and be more direct with my team, give honest feedback. Thank you so much, Samantha, for writing in. Uh, Samantha sent this as one of two questions that she was curious if we had any thoughts on. Samantha, a few thoughts. First of all, good for you for being brave. This is I think one of the most challenging things of leadership is to confront poor performance or mediocre performance when it's clear that the person is either not meeting the expectations or is not playing well within the rest of the organization. And so first of all, good for you for doing that. Secondly, is good for you for having that person exit the organization when it became clear that their behavior wasn't going to change. And you didn't mention if they made that choice or if you did, but Something you did resulted in that person exiting, which sounds like was the best solution in this case because they weren't changing their behavior. So you did what you needed to do, which is address the situation and to be brave. And so many leaders struggle with that. I know I struggled with this so much, Samantha, early on in my leadership, still do sometimes. So good for you for doing those things. Uh, What would I do in in a situation like this if you have an employee who's affecting the team? So first and foremost is clear expectations. One of the conversations that comes up often uh, when people ask for advice on this and comes up often in our academy conversations uh, within our community is I have this person that is not meeting my expectations for whatever reason, either because it's job performance or there's a personality conflict with other people in the organization or some combination of the two. And often the first question that I will ask is I'll say, imagine I went and had coffee with this person who is not meeting your expectations. And I sat down with them and I asked them, 
to articulate to me your expectations for what they need to be doing in order to meet or exceed your expectations? And would they be able to give me the three or four or five key things that they should be doing on a daily, weekly, monthly, whatever the time frame is basis in order to meet or exceed your expectations? And most of the time, when we have that conversation, Samantha, the other person says some version of, well, yeah, maybe I could be a little bit more clear. So first and foremost, that is the place, I think, for all of us to start. If the answer to that question of if someone else came in and asked that person to be very clear on your expectations, if the answer isn't a certain yes, I'm very confident that person is extremely clear on what the expectations are for the role, then I think first and foremost, we need to look at ourselves as leaders and to make sure that we have done our due diligence of being clear on our expectations. Because if we haven't done that, we jump to conclusions, we take actions, we make interventions, we start giving feedback. But the other person then potentially looks at us like, well, you never really made that clear. You never told me that. And there's a many of these intervention charts and procedures that I've seen over the years. And almost always they start, the first thing they say is, are expectations clear? So first and foremost, we need to be clear on those expectations. And it's not enough that it's in writing somewhere. That's a great starting point, but that person needs to hear it from you directly. Those expectations need to be clear. So that's a good starting point, a checkpoint. Now, assuming expectations are clear, then I think Jonathan Raymond's model that he talked about when he came on the show about a year and a half ago on five steps to holding people accountable is a great system to follow. Uh, That's episode 306. The first step in that is the mention of just calling out and maybe not even starting with calling out, but just mentioning like, hey, I'm noticing that this is going on. This isn't in alignment with our expectations. What's causing that to happen? And one of the points I I think Jonathan makes in his work, forgive me, Jonathan, if I'm remembering wrong, but is to avoid asking why. So I think asking someone why puts them on the defensive. Um, I, I even try to avoid this with our children <laughs> of asking the, why did you do that? Because they, they can't explain, they can't articulate that. And, and the minute we ask why, we put people on the defensive. So um, of asking a, a curious question of what's causing this to happen or just making mention of that, often that signals to the other person that this isn't just about I'm, I'm giving you feedback and I'm correcting things, but I notice and I care enough to ask. And back to what you said, Samantha, being brave, part of this is I'm brave enough that I care and that I notice and that I'm willing to mention when something's happening and go down the rest of those steps of accountability in order to not only help that person, but to serve the entire organization well. And you're not in danger of having this happen so much, Samantha, but for others listening who may have that fear, like you and I both have, of entering into a conversation like this and making the mention and going down that path, is when someone is not performing in the organization for whatever reason, it reflects poorly on them initially. But if it is not addressed, if you as a leader don't make the choice to address that situation and to clarify expectations and begin the mention and and have the conversation if you need to, eventually it reflects poorly on you. 
if you're not willing or able to take that action, others in the organization who may initially be frustrated with that person will turn that frustration to you as the leader and say, hey, (laughs) if they don't say this out loud, they're certainly thinking this. Why aren't you having more bravery and courage to be able to address this difficult situation? So it's really incumbent upon us to do that. So that is where I'd start, Samantha. Clarity on expectations. Follow the five steps to hold people accountable from Jonathan Raymond and avoid asking why. If you can do that, I think you're off to a really good start and doing way better than most leaders, especially early leaders handling situations like this. So I hope that helps you. Let us know what you find useful. I'm going to jump to our next question here from Pat. Pat wrote in and said, I work as the boss called a wool classer in shearing sheds. The work is hot, dirty, hard, and often frustrating. Facilities often are very poor for the staff, and we move from shed to shed over the shearing season. All these things are expected, however, and we simply ignore them. However, while I'm theoretically the boss, the shears call the shots and can be aggressive, dismissive, and downright scary when confronted. In addition, shears are in such short supply that they're quite likely to simply pick up their kit and leave the shed, leaving a big problem for the sheep farmer. But one thing I cannot ignore is the sometimes dreadful treatment of livestock by a tired, frustrated shear. I don't want to dwell on this aspect here, but I do want your advice on how to structure an induction speech that shows respect for the difficulty of their work, but makes it very clear upfront that mistreatment of animals will not be tolerated. I'd be so grateful for any suggestions you may have, as this has been weighing so heavily on my heart for so long. We own the behavior we walk past, and I have a responsibility to do whatever I can to make things better. Bonnie, obviously a very different situation than we've handled. I'm glad that I- Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, the fact that I got through that and be able to do all the SH pronunciations, I'm thinking back to my third grade speech coach (laughs) that helped me to do that successfully. So thank you wherever you are. Bonnie, what's coming up for you on this? Pat, thank you for taking the time to put these thoughts down. And I was saddened by your message just because I imagine what this is like to have a set of values that you hold and then to be experiencing such different treatment of people, of animals, and that that contrast, that cognitive dissonance can be so challenging. So, you know, just thank you for taking the time to put down your thoughts. I had a whole bunch of things that came to me. The first is just the challenge of... When a company's values either aren't being lived out, or in this case, you didn't make it clear if this is something that the organization you work for is okay with, and, and then that's one thing, or if there is a difference between what is being espoused and then what actually happens in practice. And there's a researcher by the name of Chris Ardress, and he talks about these theories in practice. These are mental maps of how we act. And there's two different parts of it. One is the theories that we espouse. Those might show up in a mission statement and values of a company. And then there's what he calls theories in use. What actually happens? And I suspect all of us have experience where we, you know, we're being told one thing, the classic thing that comes up is we really believe in teamwork and then people are compensated on their individual performance. Their bonuses, for example, might be ranked on just their own individual contributions instead of a contribution of a team that they were a part of. And it sounds like you have a lot of concerns around what Chris R just calls values and assumptions and the need for change there. 
he talks about in his work what is called double loop learning. Because we don't want there to be this great disparity between these two things. So we need to look at reshaping, rearticulating our values, and then regularly looking at how they're being put into practice. And that's what he calls that double loop learning. And it has to be done on an organizational basis. It's a holistic process because it isn't like something that can just be done by the people that own the company and then thinking everything's taken care of because organizations are complex. The other thing that came to mind, and as Dave was saying, you know, neither one of us has worked as a wool classer before. That probably does not surprise you, but I was saddened again to hear what you described as dreadful treatment of livestock. And I'm glad that you have a heart for that. I'm glad that that is something that is disappointing to you. One of the people's work who I suspect you're probably already aware of, but I really have enjoyed reading Temple Grandin's work. And for people who aren't familiar with her, she is a woman who lives with autism and has taken that autism to help. It really has helped her get in the mind of animals before they are about to be slaughtered and and just to help that where it's a an experience that doesn't have to be so devastating for them. And she's able to put herself so through her own sense of empathy, able to do that and has really transformed that process in in our world. You said something early in your message. The work is hot, dirty, hard, and often frustrating. And you talked about the facilities are often poor for the staff. We move from shed to shed over the shearing season. All these things are expected, however, and we simply ignore them. And I'm sure it doesn't pass your notice that the same way you are concerned about the treatment of the animals is the same way you're concerned about the treatment of the people who work there. And of course, it doesn't absolve them from responsibility for poor treatment of animals in my mind, but when we are treated like machines, like robots, like we are, when we dehumanize people, then it can definitely open up the opportunity for people to feel like the animals are, I guess you can't say the animals are dehumanized, de-animalized. Is that a word? You have to look that up for me, Dave. Sure. We'll go with it. Yeah. But I mean, I guess the work is always going to be hard. I can't imagine a scenario where it wouldn't be but also to be as you reshape and think about these values, what are the things that you might be able to put into place that could make things better, that could allow for those humans to be treated with a little bit more dignity and make their experience a little bit better. And I don't have any insight into what that might look like other than the research would seem to indicate that when we ask people about what would make things better for them, then even just the act of asking can make things better for them. The fact that someone cares about trying to make things better. I don't want to sound naive. I I mean, I was picturing the people you described as aggressive, dismissive, and downright scary when confronted. I'm not going to say this is an easy leadership challenge. And if you can just buck up and <laughs> get in, this should be solved in about a week. This is hard work. And I'm just so glad that you're asking the questions to begin it. And most of us are aggressive, dismissive, and downright difficult to deal with when we're in stressful working situations. So Bonnie zeroed in on the sentence that came up most for me in what you sent us, Pat, which was the, all these things are expected, however, and we simply ignore them. 
that's something I think that I don't know if that's a passing comment from you, or maybe it's an indicator of an opportunity. But I think that that is key. I think about what you've sent in the context of the preschool that our kids go to. And I realize these are different scenarios, but I think there's, I'm thinking a lot about systems here. So Bonnie and I have a friend who is in early childhood education. And when we were investigating preschools for our kids, one of the things that she taught us is that we should be looking for preschools that do a very good job of rotating staff throughout the day. So those who work with the kids in the morning and in the afternoon, but also those who may work an extended day care for kids who stay later in the day, as sometimes our kids do because you know we have professional responsibilities, so our kids will stay later at school, that those people are different people, that they get a chance to take breaks and that they're rotated and that you don't have the same person working with, the, with a child from 7 a.m. in the morning or whenever the drop-off is until you know 4 or 5 in the evening. And our preschool is just, I don't know if you've noticed, Spotty, but they're brilliant. At like, if there's someone working late on a Monday, like it's, there's not the same person there on a Tuesday working late. They have regular breaks in their schedule throughout the day. There's, there's two teachers. They can team teach. And one person you know, gets 45 minutes off, and then the next person comes in. And it's, it's a masterful system because they know that one of the things that is challenging is when you're working with kids ages three to five, that after a while, it is draining. It starts to push your buttons. You start to become, you get tired easily and you don't show up as the kind of educator and the kind of caregiver that you want to show up as in an early childhood environment. Now, I also say this from a place clearly of privilege where we are fortunate that we you know, have the resources to send our kids to a school and pay more money where they have the resources to do that. I'm very conscious that not everyone has that choice. But I say this in the context of your question, Pat, is what are the systems and structures that you can put into place rather than potentially ignoring the difficult working conditions that not only expect those difficult conditions, but embrace them and find systems that you can put into practice, whether it's taking a break, whether it's taking that time to engage more and to ask questions like Bonnie was saying, whether it is rotating schedules, whatever it is that is going to provide from a structural system standpoint, an environment that's less likely that when someone gets to a point where they're going to engage in the behaviors that none of us want to see happen. In any situation where people have more power, whether it's young children, whether it's working with the disabled, whether it's working with animals. And so there's a lot of things around power here, Pat, that if you can look at structurally, how do you as a leader create the places where you can put the structures into practice where less of that is likely? I think that is tremendous work that you can do that makes this environment not only better for the animals, but better for the people working and better for you. So I hope this is helpful. Please let us know what you find useful. And we'll tackle our next question here from Ashish. Ashish writes, I have a question more like a conundrum. Many times I'm challenged to embellish my speech and explanation. Bring it up, they say. But at the same time, I'm asked to keep it in layman terms. What has your experience been? When... Are the buzzwords important? And when should we scale back? And when should we scale the speaking down a little? Ashish, thanks so much for this question. For me, it's all about the audience. Who is the audience that you're communicating to? Um, I always try to go on the assumption 
that unless I know for sure otherwise, that people don't all know the background of what I'm communicating. They don't know the acronyms. They don't know the jargon. And so I assume that going into communicate with whoever the audience is, especially if there's multiple people in the room. And I make that assumption because, you know, and unless it's just the, you know, three or four of y- your normal team together and everyone's familiar with the jargon, everyone's familiar with the acronyms. Yeah, go, go for it. Dive in. But almost always in formal situations, if it's a briefing or if it's a presentation to a customer, there's at least someone in the room that has less familiarity with that. And so rather than using jargon, acronyms, insider language, jokes, whatever, I always try to explain things as much as I possibly can because very rarely, although once in a while someone will do this, but very rarely is it the case where someone will stop a meeting or stop a conversation and say, I don't understand that acronym or what you said doesn't make any sense to me because people don't want to look stupid in front of a group of people, especially if it's a more formal situation. And so they'll go along, but they're not really understanding what it is you're trying to communicate. So keep it in layman's terms, keep it as simple as possible, because you can always dive in with more detail. If you're having a conversation in layman's terms and the audience or the executive team or the customer starts to jump in with acronyms and details and dives in on specific examples, then follow the lead. Dive in and go into the details. You can do that easily. The harder thing is to start with all the details and the jargon and the acronyms and then find out there's one or more people in the conversation that aren't tracking with what you're saying and then have to step back and potentially make those people feel uncomfortable or feel like they weren't included in the conversation. That's the hard thing to do. So start simple, go into depth if you need to. You can always dive in with more detail. Evidence, 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 bring in examples. The more examples that you have um, that you're ready for, you have the reserve power to be able to go in and dive in deep if the audience, whoever that is, needs it. One of the things that some of the folks that I've served in the technical space have taught me over the years is to have reserve power, but not necessarily to present that. So here's an example. If you're going into a situation with a customer to brief where you are on the status of a project, you may walk in with five or 10 bullet points or slides or whatever the medium is you're using to communicate, but you may have 40 more that are on file or in your documentation or that are ready to go that they don't necessarily see. But if the conversation goes there, you're ready to engage at that depth and those details. And so one of the things Carnegie taught me over the years is the value of having reserve power. So the audience may only see 20 or 30% of the ultimate preparation that I've done walking into a high value, high visibility engagement, but I've got a lot behind me that's ready to go if and when I need it. But I still start at the very top level, keep things clear, keep things as concise as possible, and follow the lead of the audience and see what they need. If they say, hey, it's too simple, you dive right in with the evidence very quickly. One resource that'll be also helpful for this is the episode that I did with Tom Henschel a while back in episode 316, Executive Presence with Your Elevator Speech. Tom and I talked in detail about how to do this, about how to start short and concise, listen for the response, and then be able to serve the audience well based on how they respond. So I hope that's uh, helpful to you, Ashish. Let me know what you find useful from it. 
Uh, let's see. Let's tackle the next question here from Craig. Craig wrote in and said, how do you influence people whom you have no direct control over? An example is military leaders in a mission in Afghanistan whom they need direct political and military people support, but which they have no control over to accomplish a successful mission where failure is not an option. Suggestions. Bonnie, what do you think? I don't want to be a nitpicky person, Craig, but I'm going to tease you a little bit here because how do I influence people whom I have no direct control over? I do that every day of my life. I don't actually have direct control over anyone. <laughs> so except myself, that's that's it. So it's a continuum. And of course, I know you know that, but I think it's helpful to think about control as a continuum versus a binary attribute. And so I, in my leadership style, even when I have someone who reports to me on the org chart, I do think about my work with them far more about influence than I do about control. I would like most of my interactions to be ones of influencing them because that can help really with motivation. If I'm thinking about their strengths, what motivates them. I recently was able to hire an administrative assistant and I find that we both have in common that one of our strengths and one of our real motivators is achievement. And so, I mean, that's really fun because that's an easy one for me since it motivates me so much too. And so we can talk about those things. And and I know already that she has that within her. I don't need to try to control her to achieve things because she's already motivated to achieve things. So it's almost like just getting us both headed in the same or similar directions. That's about the influence versus the control I might be able to have over her because she happens to report to me. Now, certainly much of what I do on a day-to-day basis are, as you have described, working with people that I don't have any direct control over. And so how do I influence them? One of the things that is coming to mind is to try to do what Stephen Covey talked about in so much of his work. And for example, the seven habits of highly effective people seek first to understand, then to be understood. Recently at work, we had something come up where another department just totally dropped the ball on something and we could go in there and just get, you know, super angry and, you know, how dare you or whatever. But it's not actually going to be really helpful in that situation. So coming in, asking questions And like Dave described earlier, not the why, you know, how could you let this happen? That kind of thing. But really trying to just first find out from their perspective what happened and find out from their perspective what maybe went wrong before dumping a bunch of blame and accusations on them. I found in my own experience that does not really go well, doesn't have the kind of outcomes that I would hope for, both in the short term as well as in the long term. The other thing that I was thinking of in terms of, you gave an example specifically about the military. I don't have experience in the military, but my parents are very involved in canine search and rescue. And so it's an organization that often partners with police departments and sheriffs and having the dogs go out and help find people who are lost. And my mom describes really well that when you're in a situation like an emergency, then you are more in a dictatorial type of an approach. Lots of commands and do this and it's and it's instant and it's people need to be trained to respond to whoever is in that leadership position. No questions asked, just do it. But the majority of her leadership 
most of the time is not like that. Yes, that's in an emergency, and that's what they're used to with working with police. I mean, these are sometimes, in some situations, you know, times really of the essence. And so the whole thing of like, how could we do this better? That double loop learning that I talked about earlier, like, that's not the time to do it. But that much of her leadership challenge is in that afterward, making sure that that double loop learning happens, making sure that people are heard. When you, the higher up that you go in an organization, the less of a capacity you have to see from a perspective of those front lines. And so those people who are in frontline positions are such valuable assets because they see things you don't see. But if we allow hierarchy to magnify that distance that we have, we aren't able to have the kinds of intelligence and perspective that we need to have the capacity to have as leaders to make the best decisions, to know where to go next, to know how to handle when things do go wrong. Craig, you mentioned the military. One resource that I'd love to point you to as well is a book I have not read, but I've heard from many people in our community that's extraordinarily been helpful to them. And it's become a seminal book on managing complexity in teams. And specifically, as you mentioned in the military, the book is called Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. It is considered to be a really powerful read on handling complexity in leadership. I'd certainly recommend it just based on so many people I know that have found value in that book. And I hope we could have him come on the show at some point and uh, speak about the book. If any of you have a connection to Stanley McChrystal, let me know, because I think that uh, book would be in the model that's presented there would be of great value to so many in our community. Many related episodes to the questions we responded to today. You may recall Bonnie mentioning that her mom is the CEO of a nonprofit organization called Southwest Search Dogs and has been for many, many years serving uh, Southern California communities uh, in helping uh, police agencies to go out on searches and to support them through uh, canine search and rescue. And uh, Jan was back on the show back almost seven years ago on episode 25. The topic of that show is what search dogs can teach you about engagement. Turns out there are a lot of lessons about human behavior that you can learn by learning more about how they work and train search dogs. Obviously, a lot of differences too, but we talked about some of the ways they do that, not only with the dogs, but in working with volunteers, which it is a volunteer agency. So uh, that's episode 25. Uh, If you'd like to hear some wisdom from Bonnie's mom, Jan Frizee. Also valuable to you will be episode 254, Use Power for Good and Not Evil. We talked about power dynamics in several of the responses today. One of the things that we talked about in episode 254 is the pretty conclusive research that the more power we have and that we gain as leaders, the less empathetic we all tend to be. It is one of those correlations that is absolutely there. And in that episode, we talked with Dacher Keltner and looked at his research out of Berkeley. He's the founder of the Greater Good Center in what we can do as leaders and more broadly as human beings to be thinking about how we can be more empathetic, even though many of us are in positions 
of some power and influence. So uh, if that is something that you are thinking about of how can you bridge that gap more effectively, I would certainly recommend listening to Dacker Keltner in episode 254. Also, episode 302 will be of value to you, how to challenge directly and care personally. Kim Scott was my guest. She is the best-selling author of the book, Radical Candor and of the organization of the same name. She has really been a great teacher for me and many others in our community on how to balance challenging people directly, but also at the same time caring personally and doing both of those. We talk about that extensively in episode 302. If coming away from listening to some of our responses on these questions is getting you thinking about how do I both care personally and have the courage and the bravery, as Samantha talked about in her question, to challenge directly. Episode 302 is a great starting point for you. Also recommend episode 306, Five Steps to Hold People Accountable. I mentioned that conversation earlier with Jonathan Raymond. If you are looking for a helpful model, five steps that will help you to become more brave. <laughs> I know one of the things that is helpful for me is if I have a roadmap and I know where to go. So if you want to challenge directly, and that is a struggle for you as it is for many of us, especially doing it for the first time, I would challenge you to check out episode 306. Jonathan Raymond kind of walks us through a roadmap for that. Of course, it's different in every situation, but it'll give you a starting point. And then finally, I mentioned this episode 316, Executive Presence with your elevator speech, my friend Tom Henschel was joining me on that episode. We talked about a lot of the question that was asked today on when do I go into detail and when do I use more layman's terms in my language? Extensive conversation about that. Also, some of the key tactics for doing that well on episode 316. And you can get to all of those past episodes by going to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. And when you do, you will uh, be able to search by topic if you already have your free membership set up, not only those episodes, but every episode in the library since 2011 and all the expert interviews. If you do not yet have your free membership set up, it'll prompt you to do that. Just set up your free membership. It'll give you access to all of those episodes in the archive, searchable by topic, as well as my weekly leadership guide, my free 10-day audio course, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead, all the book notes, everything in the free membership community. And if you haven't already gained access to that, just go over to coachingforleaders.com on the main page and you can set up your free membership as well so you have access to all of those resources. Next week, I am glad to welcome back to the show my friend Kwame Christian. He is returning to teach us how to find confidence in conflict. Kwame is an expert in negotiation and is going to be teaching us some of the key lessons from his new book. You're going to find that conversation extraordinarily helpful and practical if you're going into situations where you're handling conflict. Thank you so much this week to Johan VH for the kind review he left on Stitcher and KBH Kuzbay for the review on iTunes. If you've been listening to the show for a while, please leave a review wherever you listen. If you're an Overcast user and this episode was helpful, hit the star button on the bottom of the app there to recommend it to others. Thanks if you do either. See you next week with Kwame Christian. Take care.